0: Washington State Teacher of the Year, Nate Bowling was everywhere in 2016. From shaking hands with President Obama, to lecturing at Harvard, to explaining the parallels of the Civil Rights Movement and the Star Wars Trilogy to Bill Gates, everyone wanted to talk with Nate. But amidst the fanfare and accolades that come with the status of Teacher of the Year, Nate continues to focus on his core passion, teaching his students at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington. Most people can agree that our kids deserve the best education. Talking to Nate, we learned some great takeaways how we as citizens in Seattle and the state of Washington can create a better future for our kids. The self-proclaimed nerd farmer takes us to school on a few of his most passionate topics. We talk about school funding and Governor Jay Inslee's current budget proposal to fund education, how race, real estate, and schools are key drivers to shaping our communities, and of course, we talk about his beloved Seattle Sounders.
1: Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis Jones. We are here with Nate Bowling. I am Tyler Davis Jones. And I'm Phil Greeley. And Nate is the Washington State Teacher of the Year. Uh, He teaches at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, Washington. He was the top four finalist for the National Teacher of the Year, and he recently met Barack Obama and was interviewed by Bill Gates, where he discusses the parallels of story and teaching, as well as how he is a nerd farmer. Uh, You can find that video on YouTube, and I highly recommend you check it out. And on top of all this, he is a season ticket holder to our MLS Cup champions, the Seattle Sounders. Nate? Thanks for being here, man.
2: Man, thank you, thank you.
1: We appreciate it. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about some big topics here, but
0: yep. let's start with um, the Sounders. I saw you flew out to Toronto for the I game. I did fly to Toronto. Yeah. Well, what was that? You've been waiting a while for that, right?
2: Yeah, I've been a Sounders fan since I was uh, like in high school in the '90s, like with A League, and then season tickets since the inception of the MLS team. Uh, and it was dope. Like, so here's the deal: I flew on mileage, and so I had to take whatever dumb route like United agreed to. Yeah. Yeah. And so I flew from here to Houston.
1: Nice.
2: And then slept on the floor in the Houston airport. Uh, And then arrived in Toronto at like one o'clock for an eight o'clock game. Uh, So I was in Toronto for like 18 hours total. It was like 25 degrees, uh, snowing lightly, and like a wind going. And I, Long Johns over Long Johns, wool socks, wool socks, hand warmer, hand warmer. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. It was a great win. when we went to PKs, like, I couldn't watch for a little bit. Yeah. And then I just turned and went, jackets off! And, like, my road took her jackets <laughs> off and, like, linked arms. No uh, way. And it was amazing. We were partying in Toronto till 3 a.m. Oh, of wow. course. Of and course. Then, yeah, and then flew out at 9 o'clock in the morning because I'm stupid. Right. And so flew to Denver, layover in Denver. So we spent more time traveling than we did actually in Toronto.
1: But, like, I wouldn't trade a second of it. So good. Well, it was such a good game, man. So, so yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the pivotal game that you want to watch is that game.
0: As a season ticket holder in penalties, in Kick. What do we call that? Penalty kicks. I'm yeah. not a soccer soccer uh, guy. Oh, you're fine. What do you? That was the first game I watched all season, and I was sweating. So I'm imagining. Yes, you are freaking out. Yeah, I, I was
2: totally nervous because the thing is, is uh, we don't have a great history in PKs. Like we've lost cups in PKs before. Right. Uh, and also, it's not traditional to do the PKs in front of the other teams' like supporter yeah, yeah. And so, like our players were kicking basically in front of their lions den. Uh, and like it was it was a, just a nerve-wracking experience I think my favorite part of the whole thing was like standing there and realizing that my beer wasn't getting colder so I wasn't getting hot it was so cold outside <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. getting colder yeah. and I was like, wow, this is really really this cold and next <laughs> to me was this guy who flew from Hawaii and like so he came from Hawaii on some stupid ticket he's wearing shorts and I'm just like what are you doing? Like, he's like, I'm f- 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 fine. I'm like, you're not fine. And like, all the women in the section were like pitying him. A lady goes, You need a mother. And I was like, like, The kid did, but like, he won, right? And like, yeah. we did the arm arm thing. He was like shivering. And I'm just like, Man, oh youth, my
1: gosh. Youth is
2: wasted on the young. Yeah.
1: So well, good. That was so fun, good. fun moment for the well, city. Fry, fry had one of the best games. That of man all time.
2: will never pay for a drink in the are city. Are you games. kidding me? There's no way. Yeah, say, Fry. There's Friday.
1: no way. And, in fact, on, I hopped on Twitter as soon as the game was over, and I said, okay, guys, we're inviting you. 2017, we would love to interview any and all of you yep. for the podcast. <laughs> so if there's any Seattle Sounders out there who are listening, you just let us know. Hit us up on Twitter. Um, okay. Okay. Sweet. And did you play soccer as a kid? I played, like, like indoor as okay. like an adult and, like, boys club soccer.
2: But, like, I remember my coach yelling, get your hands out your pockets. Right. So, like, it wasn't right, right, anything, right. like, important or impressive. So, like, I know the game right. Yeah. But, like, play with actual skill and talent, like, now I'm embarrassing.
1: Totally. Okay. Oh, cool. Well, luckily we have a talented team to watch and cheer for. Absolutely. So. All right. So, Nate, uh, what subject do you teach? What grade do you teach?
2: Um, I work at Lincoln High School in Tacoma, which, like, for Seattle folks is, like, Demographically, Rainier Beach, mm-hmm. but then, like, mm-hmm. performance wise, closer to Garfield. Um, and I teach AP government politics to 12th graders, which is fascinating this year. Wow. Serious. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, I basically walk in, I'm like, provocative question, and they chew it up. Um, and then I teach AP human geography to ninth graders who are drinking from fire hose. So, like, I think about, like, when I was 14, my ninth grade studies class was like, I don't remember much of it. I remember like a, a carousel Don Draper slideshow of Hong Kong, and not much else. Yeah. And these kids are talking about like economic development and cultural diffusion,
1: and it's a really cool class to teach. Wow, awesome. that's awesome! And then, what's the demographic of Lincoln High School?
2: Uh, Lincoln's really interesting. So it's it's in a neighborhood that is uh, working class white, and then people of color, and so like it fluctuates year to year, but roughly it's about you know plus or minus four percent either way. Twenty percent white, twenty percent black, twenty percent Hispanic Latino. 20% Asian, which is mainly uh, Southeast Asian, Vietnamese, Cambodian. And then the remaining 20% is a mix of mixed race, mm. uh, Filipino, Pacific Islander, Native American. Cool. And so it really is, I, I, I talk about how Lincoln looks like America's going to look in 100 years yeah. or 50 years demographically.
1: Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Um, and then how long have you been teaching in education? This
2: is my 11th year. Um, 11th year. I Eight years at Lincoln High School. Uh, and before that, I, talk at, I taught at Meeker Middle School, which is a middle-class, uh, higher-income uh, school across town. And so essentially, like, in my career in Tacoma, I've worked at the highest-poverty high school or lowest-income high school in the county and then, like, a middle school that had, right? Like, er, the, the chairman of, like, Rainier Pacific Bank's kid was in my class at, at Meeker. Okay. And so, like, I, I know the ups and downs of, like, the of inequality and the haves yeah. and the have-nots.
1: Yeah, you've experienced that all. Yeah. Um, and then what got you into education?
2: Uh... So when I talk to Bill Gates, I joke about being a nerd farmer,
1: uh, but I I actually believe that
2: education is like long-term social engineering. Essentially like the students who I'm working with are like my future neighbors, the future like insurance agents, realtors, police officers, uh, social workers, entrepreneurs. And if I wanna create a more just and equal society, like I could get into politics, which I thought I wanted to do at one point, but I realized that education is the way to do it. Mm. And so essentially I'm planting seeds, my students are going to be the transformative force that transforms the city of Tacoma. Mm. Like, we know Tacoma, and we're going to get to this, obviously. Tacoma is a working-class kind of gritty city. Um, if Tacoma takes the next step to where it needs to be, it's going to be because we educate and economically develop the east side of Tacoma, mm. which is our equivalent of, oh, I don't know. Um, it's our, like, CD Twenty years ago, maybe like like that kind of demographics. And so, if if we can develop that neighborhood and develop develop that neighborhood by educating the population, then what we're able to do is keep educated kids in the neighborhood hmm. and not have them get pushed out as housing prices rise.
1: Hmm. Is there like is, is this your I use the word pedagogy or is this is this your philosophy? Great right word, yeah. yeah, no, right yeah, word yeah. Science of teaching. I, I worked in ed tech. I kind of know that right a little word. bit, yeah.
2: Um, <laughs> I would say that it's a, a worldview that I have, but mm-hmm. it's shared with a lot of my staff. Like my principal says, like the fate of the city of Tacoma is in the hands of the staff of Lincoln High School. Like we, we, we know and society knows the stats about education. like. Uh, Kids who are growing up in poverty, who aren't educated, uh, they're going to end up doing menial labor. They're going to end up uh, being incarcerated. They're going to having uh, lower lifetime lifetime earnings. Mm. And so, like the work that we're doing is really you know transformational. If I can get a first generation college kid, so a first generation student to college, I'm transforming like their family's path for generation. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like, my parents are college graduates. My brother's an engineer. I'm a teacher. Okay. I don't have kids, but if I had kids, they would probably go do something else, right? Like, maybe I get a dentist out of this, right? Uh, for my students, most of their parents aren't college graduates. And so if we can get them into college or into vocational schools, then, like, we're creating a whole new path for them in the future. And that's right. really important to
0: me. Yeah. That's great. Take us through the Teacher of the Year Award. Was that is that something that gets voted on by students, by teachers, by administration? How does that... How does one come to be, besides being an awesome teacher, how does one come to be a teacher of the year in Washington?
2: So this is my second like, kind of teaching award. And so the first one I got was the Milken Award, which was a completely opaque process I had no idea about. They showed up at my school, had a surprise assembly, and was like, here's the check for $25,000. And I was like, oh, wow. Sweet. OK, Okay. <laughs> take action. it.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, this was less opaque. I was nominated by somebody, uh, and then based on that nomination, I was like, well, I don't want to do this. This is a more hassle for me. My principal basically said, like, it's good for the community. It's good for you. It's good for the school. Um, and so I did the application. And then from there, I was named as the regional teacher of the year. So I was first teacher of the year for, like, from Snohomish County or, like, I don't know, like, Linwood to, to Lacey. Mm. Um, that's the, like the region that we're in. And then there were eight finalists for Teacher of the Year. We were asked to refine our applications. I didn't, because like I couldn't be bothered, because I'm, I, it, for me, it wasn't a priority. Like My party's my students. Uh, and went down for interviews, and then last September uh, at EMP, which is now the Museum of Pop Culture, which is a terrible change, but whatever, uh, I was named Teacher of the Year for the state of Washington. And uh, that's allowed me a lot of opportunities. I've been to Washington, D.C. four times. Uh, I met President Barack Obama. I've spoken uh, before the state legislature, before the State Board of Education. Um, I've spoken to the outgoing superintendent of OSPI, have a good relationship with the incoming superintendent of OSPI. And so like, for me, it's the best of both worlds because I'm I'm passionate about education and leadership and like talking about education policy, but I don't want to be an ex-teacher. I think there's too many ex-teacher know-it-alls saying, well, here's what schools should do. And so like I have my foot in both worlds. I'm a policy leader and a classroom teacher, and that gives me me credibility.
1: Yeah.
0: So you're talking about your platform that you now have, and so our awareness of you came in 2016, I guess, as you've been Teacher of the Year. So you've obviously used it to talk about education policy, but I follow you on Twitter, and I also see you talking about things that um, are related, but even bigger, um, right? So like police brutality and um, I guess maybe not bigger than education, but athletes kneeling for the anthem. I, sure. I know you engage with people on Twitter about that. Is um, this an intentional thing? Was this something you were doing before Teacher of the Year, or are you now using this platform in a way that you didn't prior? Does I, that make sense? I, I guess both. I've, I've been a loudmouth my entire life, Okay, right? Uh, I, I, I would say that
2: education doesn't happen in isolation. Like the classroom that I teach in is shaped by policies of government that have happened for generations, Uh, the outcomes that my students are going to have in their life are shaped by uh, things that happen as well. So, like, I'm a generalist. Like, I'm an econ major teaching government, right? And so if you're an econ major teaching government and geography, then, like, there's some cross-pollination that has to happen. And so, like, education is not unrelated to law enforcement. And law enforcement is not unrelated to housing policy. And housing policy is not unrelated to issues of, like, discrimination and segregation. And so for me, it's kind of a holistic, like, if I want a more just world, like, teaching isn't the only thing that's going to get us there. Yeah. We have to be engaged in the policy sphere as well. And so I've been outspoken. Like, the previous Teacher of the Year was a guy. He teaches a lot in elementary school. And uh, he didn't bang the drum about police brutality. Uh, funny, he does now, right? Mm-hmm. And so if what I've done this year is, uh, is broaden the scope of what the Teacher of the Year, like, says and mm-hmm. does, then, like, that's an honor to me. Uh, totally. The new Teacher of the Year is a lady named Camille, and she's from Quincy, Washington, and so she's working in, like, middle of Washington agricultural country. But, like, there's equity issues there as well. Like, she she works at a school that's uh, near, like, the gorge in, like, Vantage, Washington, like, out that way. And her students are largely uh, migrant farm labor. Okay. So the issues that impact my kids of color and my low-income kids, kids in Tacoma impact them as well. It's the same side of, of, of the same co- – or different side of the same coin.
0: Yeah,
2: And so, like, I don't know. I, I – I, I guess I could have been teacher of the year and talked about how much I love kids and how much I love teaching. And I love kids and I love teaching. Mm. But like, there are also issues that need to be addressed. And uh, some, somewhere along the line, like I picked up the axiom, uh, what's the use of a platform if you're not going to use it for justice? Yeah. And so I have a platform as teacher of the year. And by the way, I, I've been replaced, right? But like, I, I still have a microphone, like metaphorically and actually right now. Totally. Um, and so I, as long as people are listening, I'm going to talk about what's on my heart. That's
1: cool. great. Is there like a book in the future or just something okay so true
2: story like everybody's like nate you should write a book and i've got a couple book offers yeah yeah uh i just don't see like uh, okay teacher books are boring as hell (laughs)
1: Like i don't want to write a teacher education book
2: of course if i was gonna write a book my book would be about how as a teacher i have summers off i travel every summer Hmm. like so if i was gonna do a book this is the book right so like what so like i remember in 2007 i was in columbia and I was kind of in a dodgy neighborhood and I saw a police officer and I was like, Oh, thank God. And then I was like, is that what it's like to be white in America? Nah, like I saw the police nah, and I was excited. Nah. Like if I was going to write a book it be about it would be about being a black male traveling and like what that taught me about America. But like the teaching book, like I blog, I've joked about having a, a podcast actually hmm. and calling it podagogy, which is a terrible name. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: No podcast pun names. Um, I, if, if if I have a blog that 500,000 people a year are reading I don't think I'm going to sell a book to 500,000 people. Right. And so I'm pretty satisfied right now, honestly.
1: Cool. That's great, man. Uh, so you recently wrote an article in the Huffing And it got picked up by Huffington Post. It was originally on your blog, Nate. Uh, Let's get Nathan- a plug in here. Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I blog at natebowling.com. natebowling.com. Yeah. Um, that went viral. Uh, it was called The Conversation I'm Tired of Not Having. Yeah. Uh, where you unapologetically argue against segregated schools and inequity in funding in the American education system. Um, You you definitely stirred my heart being a white, middle-class, educated male um, because you call me out, and I appreciate it. Uh, Can you unpack the article for us and maybe give a few lessons that you learned from that experience?
2: Sure. Uh, So the article... Actually, the, the birth of the article was just, like, me being upset. Uh, I had gone down to my first Teacher of the Year function in San Antonio. And when I was sitting there, a lady who was National Teacher of the Year in, like, 2015... Nope, 20... That doesn't matter, the year. Uh, she teaches in Montgomery County in, like, Baltimore. Or near, Sorry, near in Maryland. Uh, and she was talking about how she's been in the same school for 20 years and never had a white student. If you know the demographics of, Mo- of Montgomery County, it's actually a very affluent county. And so... She's sitting here talking about, like, that experience. I'm talking to all the other teachers of the year and and many of them from high-poverty schools. And, like, it really occurred to me, something that's, like, always been in the back of my head, that, like, a great sword is happening in society. And we're basically shunting off some portions of the population into into schools that are inferior and, like, basically saying, hey, hey, good luck with this. Uh, The article had three basic points. Point one is, is that we have segregated schools, and that's kind of by design. People with means, uh, they live in suburban districts, or they put themselves near schools that are filled with other suburban well-to-do kids, and they're kind of like isolated and protected from the inequality. Uh, Point two was, there's no impetus to change this. Like, we tried desegregation, we tried busing in the city of Seattle. We tried it nationwide, and the year Seattle schools... uh, went to bussing 3000 white students
1: vanished from the school district this was integration yeah okay yes. Do you remember when, what year when that was, was that yeah
2: ooh i want to say like
1: 72 74 it was in the early 70s right so 3000 people now have left in 1972 uh the was that was that federal or was that state so the, the mandated? F-
2: so all of this comes from the brown versus board case in 1955 okay. right or 54 so brown v board says we need to desegregate schools and they say with all deliberate speed which basically means whatever right mm-hmm. and so that didn't happen at a good clip. The federal courts came back and said, no, really, we mean it this time. There were other cases. Uh, so, But n- there was no, like, mandated federal, this is how you have to do it. So everybody did it differently.
1: Okay. So Washington State says 1972, we're integrating. Yeah. Um, and 3,000 people decide... To, well, not just 3,000 well, 3, people, 3,000 families. 3,000 students vanish students, from the district, right? right.
2: And so, like, where do they go? They go into private schools. Yep. Enrollment at, like, the private schools in Seattle shot up. Uh, they started heading across the lake to private schools. Right. They started heading into Shoreline and other districts, surrounding districts. And so, like, we tried integration, and basically society decided it wasn't worth it.
1: Do, uh, you, think, do you think that's a product of it being in 1972? And do you think it would look different today than it would... Well, I guess the the elections probably an indicator of that. I think it
2: would
0: look worse today, honestly. Um, Well, it was in the mid-2000s, I think, Seattle voted to have neighborhood schools, which is, you know.
2: A neighborhood school is by definition segregated because housing is segregated. Right, Right. Well, and I I would add to this also. uh, So Seattle abandoned integration, America abandoned integration. Uh, Basically, 1988, when I was like in fourth grade, is the point in American history in which we had the least segregated schools. And it's also the point in American history where the academic achievement gap between students of color and white students was the smallest. Mm. And so integration is also one of the only ed reform things that's actually proven to work. And we've decided societally, like, it's not worth it because mm. we'd rather live in our in our enclaves. And, like, I just don't believe that a society as diverse as ours can thrive if we're living in these homogeneous enclaves that we like we are. Right. And so um, talking about school segregation publicly... Led to a conversation about neighborhood segregation publicly, Mm -hmm. and talking about neighborhood segregation led me to talking to realtors about segregation because, like, you have to follow this all the way back to its like kind of patient zero, and not saying that realtors today are the cause of housing segregation today, but I can say that the practice of real estate agents in the past caused past segregation. Absolutely, like, there's like this whole thing about we all look at this outside of Chicago and we're like, oh my god, it's so, but like, that's not an accident. Right, like for generations certain families showed up to the city of Chicago and were shunted into a certain neighborhood that was given inferior schooling, inferior infra- infrastructure, inferior resources, inferior access to health care, and more pollution and like this is the outcome. Right, right. Like, well, and
1: then Fannie Mae ultimately gave precedent for that yeah. that almost licensed to that. Yeah. I think it was what 15 per- if it was like 15% yes. of the population was black yeah. um, then they wouldn't actually loan yeah. And which which, and we were mandated like. (laughs) Well, and and we can grab any map of any urban city, like any major
2: city in America, and it's the same story, right? And like in Tacoma, there was a red line, and it ran along Division Avenue. And like just saying that out loud, we had a red line along Division Division Avenue is crazy to me. That's crazy. And we can look at Seattle, right? Like I'm I'm not gonna you know act like I know Seattle history like backwards and forwards, but um, Republican Street and Massachusetts. If you know like if you know African American history, like. Blacks were Republicans up until the Civil Rights Act and, like, the, and the Southern strategy. And so, like, Republic, like, like, when Nixon, not Nixon, when Lincoln was, was the president, like, they talked about Lincoln and the black Republicans. Right. And so, like, Republican Street was in the black neighborhood. Massachusetts Avenue, the Massachusetts Fighting 55th is the black regiment from the movie Glory. And so, like, those neighborhoods and those street names aren't accidents in, like, the neighborhoods in Seattle. Yeah. And that's where people who look like me were shunted to in the 60s here.
1: Mm. Interesting. And so, for for our listeners, sorry to cut you off, no, Phil. keep going. Um, for our listeners, can you break down the word redlining? Because yeah. this is a word that I didn't even know until this year. Sure. And I'm in real estate. So, yeah, so maybe, like, what was the practice? How did it kind of practically work? We
0: we've heard you tell a story sort of personally about you and your friend um, so you can use that or, uh, well,
2: or nobody dinner. has the money to well not nobody
0: nobody I know and nobody uh,
2: of, of in, in my family history has the money to buy a house with cash and so if you're not going to buy a house with cash it's just financing and so the Federal Housing Authority and Fannie Mae and and the real estate agents all kind of conspired together throughout a lot of American history that certain people will go to certain neighborhoods and others other neighborhoods and and they essentially would not grant loans in certain neighborhoods. And there are these actual maps that exist of urban areas, like Baltimore, like Philadelphia, and like Tacoma, where the neighborhoods are color-coded. So, like, the green neighborhoods are the wealthier neighborhoods. And, like, honestly, in Seattle, those are the neighborhoods on the north side of the Ship Canal. And then the red neighborhoods are the neighborhoods where uh, people of color showed up where they would be sent to. And so you end up, like, it's... it's it's not some crazy conspiracy that we ended up with these uniform clusters of dense black populations in every Mm -hmm. urban area. Like that was the policy, which is why like housing desegregation is really, really hard because we reached redlining, sorry, we reached segregation through redlining, which is intentional government policy. The only way you can undo that, I believe is through intentional government policy, Mm -hmm. but there's no political will for that. And Mm -hmm. so we're kind of left with a situation where redlining is over, right? Steering is illegal. But the scars of redlining and steering still exist today in the housing market, mm-hmm. and that's on. And, that, and that's not even bringing up like the housing covenants, right? And so, like it, here, and it's, it's funny. On the way here, I came through Lake City, right? And so, like Lake City um, was a separate city from Seattle, and within Lake City, there were housing covenants that said houses here cannot be sold to blacks, Jews, Chinese, Japanese, uh, Mongoloids, like right? Um, and like that, that was policy that's in documents, and so. The other thing I would say is like, none of this is that long ago. Like, so I, I was born in 79. Y'all were born in the 80s. Like, we're, we're none of us are ancient. Uh, this is my mom's lifetime. Like, my mom moved to Tacoma in 1960, which means she moved here during a period of redlining, and she moved here uh, before the passing of the Fair Housing Act. And so this, is, much in the same way that I talk about how education is an intergenerational lift and transformation, uh, redlining and housing segregation uh, is an intergenerational, like, yank backwards. It's like... I don't know. We always see movies when a guy has a parachute, right? And they pull the drawstring and they go, <laughs> and get sucked up. And I know I'm doing visuals on a podcast, but whatever. <laughs> uh, that's what redlining was. Go it to was, Facebook
1: and watch the Facebook Live. There you
2: go. Yeah. That's what redlining was. It was basically like an intergenerational um, suck up that cost families of color like hundreds of thousands of dollars over time.
0: Yeah. Well, you say, I mean, you mentioned that steering is illegal, and yes, it is. And you mentioned that redlining is not a practice anymore, which is true. But so Tyler and I don't talk about our day job, often on the podcast, but we're both real estate agents and we talk with buyer clients all the time in the car about, we get asked questions that kind of um, imply a lot of those same themes, right? So questions we get that seem innocent, um, is the school good? And
2: is the school good means, is the school white and Asian? Let's be honest. And, and, And the right kind of Asian, is the school white, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, not is a school white and Cambodian, Cambodian, Vietnamese, cause they're not the right kind of Asian for a lot of people. So
0: when it comes to schools, the only thing we can really do is say, okay, we well, look it up online. Yeah. And then online it's all standardized test scores is what they're ranking things off of which.
2: Which correlate basically not a hundred percent, but correlate very strongly with income. So essentially when somebody says, I want a good school for my kids and they go online, what they're gonna see is I want a white school an affluent school for my kids. Yeah. And the issue is, is that, okay, if we want integration, but people of means are sending their kids to the same schools, then we're getting further and further away from integration.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So where do we go from there?
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I would say Phil and I fit that mold well, not because we had poor intentions, but because we're just looking out for our family. Right. So I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like I moved into the house that I moved into looking at schools, looking at those same test scores, sure. because that's the data I was provided. Um, What's your ideal outcome for both Phil and I as we move forward? So my my daughter's quite a bit younger than your kids. They're going to be going into school a little bit sooner than probably here in the next couple of years. But what's like that ideal outcome for you for us as white, male, middle class people?
2: Well, I would say a couple of things. So like in your realty work, uh, when people say, what's the story in the school? what I would do is I would much in the way that like real estate agents have to maintain relationships with like people in coffee shops and like, and, and baristas who they, conf- they they meet in their, in their cafes. Uh, I would maintain relationship with educators and then point them toward educators who can tell you what's really happening in schools mm. because, uh, wealth masks, a lot of dysfunction that happens in other and essentially good schools. Uh, I would say the quality of teaching and learning and what's happening in a high-poverty school oftentimes outstrips the quality of teaching and learning that's happening in a high-income school because the kids who are coming from the high-poverty school don't have the access. And so the teacher is actually teaching, right? Like, I walk into my classroom sometimes, and I'm like, here's a concept you've heard nothing about in your entire life. Let's get you to this point on there Versus, versus if I worked at a different school or my old school. I'm like, here's a concept tied to what your parents do. Right. Let's add a little vocabulary to it. It's a different job. So I would say, you know, thing one is to talk about is to have people talk to teachers because teachers know where the bodies are buried. Uh, And the other thing I would say is, is this sounds weird, but like when we did integration, the kids of color that went to wealthy white schools did better. Mm. And the white kids that went to the low income schools and the black schools did fine. It's not like these kids went and all of a sudden came back with, like, tattoos and cornrows. And right. not that tattoos and cornrows are bad, and that's probably a joke I shouldn't make. Right. But, like, they came out fine.
1: They, they didn't join a gang.
2: School, yeah. so much of schooling. So the, the most important in-school factor is the teacher in the classroom. Yeah. Like,
1: period, full stop. So it, can can you break down the word fine for me? Yeah, sure. So, again, as a, as a father who loves my daughter. Yep. And
2: the, the, the outcomes weren't any worse. Okay. So if, if you, here's the thing is, so... Uh, the most important school-based factor is the quality teacher in the classroom, and there are great teachers at every school like right? high poverty schools, low poverty schools. But the most important factor overall is what's happening at home. Mm-hmm. And if you are a caring father, and you're reading to your kid, and you're doing the work with them, and they go to a high poverty school, they will be
0: fine. You said something on Twitter uh, about food. Yeah, ed- food, edu- food teaching, yeah. good well, teacher, sure. and. Well, a home, basically.
2: I was at a conference in DC last month and I was getting like hot and bothered. I, I often get frustrated when I go to conferences about education and there are a few teachers there. Um, and so they were talking about uh, college and career readiness and getting kids ready for college and getting kids ready for the future and the economy and growth and like long term trends and PISA scores, which is this international test that like kids all over the world take. And we just like rub in teachers' faces about scores in America that drives me nuts anyway. It really occurred to me that we can talk as much as we want to about standards and about tests and about, like, accountability systems. But what's going to determine where their kid learns is going to be are they fed, are they safe and clothed, and are they getting effective instruction from a teacher? Like,
1: it sounds like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's
2: exactly Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But we forget that all of a sudden, right? right. Like one of the things that we have in America is we look at, like, the, these low-income schools and we're like – how come the students at the low-income school aren't performing better? Because their life needs aren't met. Hmm. And it's very hard to sit in a calculus, and le- sorry, a calculus class and think about differential equations or to sit very in a government hard. class yeah. and hear about like, you know, Fed 10 talks about blah, 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 blah. The 14th Amendment talks about blah, 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 When like your stomach's growling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've had so many students who were doing super well and then had like a life crisis and they plummeted. I've had so many kids who were doing horrible and got stabilized and did better. Like we completely underestimate the impact of, le- the, the impact of a lack of stability in students' lives. And I don't know, like I, I, I imagine if we made our national priority to make sure that every child was fed, clothed, and like taken care of their basic needs, I, I reckon scores would rise if we didn't change a thing about teaching. But like we don't put our money and effort there, which is weird to me. But like that's why I'm not a politician.
0: Okay, so is what I'm hearing is that to really assess a school community, you have to kind of go deep or talk to people that are in the know. Is there it, any metric that is worthwhile looking at?
2: Well, I, so if you want to know where the best pizza in some place is, you can go on Yelp, yeah. right? If you want to know like the best florist, you can go on Yelp too. If you want to know like what's the best environment for your kid to learn. Like, you should invest some time having those conversations. And I think Googling something like, where is the best place for my child to learn is silly. Like, I want to I wanna have internal conversations. I want, so something that happens sometimes is, is you have like a, a nice wealthy school, right? But like, there's a teacher in there who's not making, not making it happen, right? So there's, at low-income schools, there's transformative teachers doing really amazing, amazing work. And at high-income schools, there's people who probably should be out of the, out of the game right now and who should retire who aren't doing transformative work how do you know what you're going to be getting unless you're entering into the building and having conversations? I, I would say this. I would much rather determine where my child goes by walking into the building and meeting some people who work in the building and seeing the facilities than any results off some stupid website. Like, that's, that's just, to me, I, I don't have kids. I don't know. Like, folk, parents are busy. But, like, going to great schools, I think, is a really not good use of people's time.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you just step back and think of it practically, uh it's a little silly just to trust whatever Google search result pops up versus having that personal experience. Cause my daughter is introspective. My daughter's yep. a, she's, she's kind of an introvert, yep. like, you know, w- her personality is not going to fit into an algorithm. It's, it's really a matter of a conversation, which I think is a really valid and valuable point to take. Absolutely. Totally.
0: So shifting course a little bit, I know one thing you've taught your students about is um, how they should interact with local politicians, Mm -hmm. um, uh, how they should act when they're pulled over by police or interact with law enforcement. Um, How have those conversations, and I know you might be in a different part of your syllabus throughout the year, but how have those conversations changed or shifted or intensified since November 8th? So the thing is, is that
2: like so many, if you're a kid of color or a kid in poverty, so many of your experience with government are negative. Like think about what government means. Government means you go to a school where you're bored, a government school. Um, Government might mean a social worker who is breaking up your family. Government might be a police officer that pulls you over and you feel harassed by. Government might be in your head somebody who's not listening to you. And so what I've tried to do throughout my career in my government classes, expose my students to the people, actual people and faces in government. And so before this year, I've had uh, my local congressperson come to my classroom. I've had state legislators come in. I've had a gentleman that argued a case for the Supreme Court come in. Uh, Senator Patty Murray's been to my classroom before. And then this week, Janesley was there, who's the governor of Washington State. But, like, November 8th was a, was a, was a slap. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm—my politics are complicated. Like, I—in uh, my life, I voted for a libertarian for president in 2000. In my life, I voted for Cynthia McKinney from the Green Party— uh, I am a black progressive who was president or vice president of the college Republicans when I was in college. I'm also religious and a gun owner and a vet. So, like, I'm a, I'm a, I don't fit, like, in any of the boxes, <laughs> which is awesome for my kids because, like, they have no idea where I'm coming from. Yeah. I think most of my kids think I'm a frustrated Nixon Republican, which I think I might be, but I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> um, but, like, I also don't preach my politics to my students. Like, I, I had a teacher when I was in high school who basically, like, preached weak liberal politics to me, and I resented it. I think it's one of the reasons why I became Republican when I was young. Uh, I also said to my students, like, I'm not going to tell you, like, what you should think, but I-, I can't mess with Trump. Like, from from the outset, like, that person, that man has seemed unsuited to the office for me. And the way that I've kind of done this for my students is, is, like, I've shown them uh, other Republican icons and said, like, Look at Eisenhower, Mm. right? Look at Eisenhower's writing. Look at Reagan. Look at his convention speech in 76 that he gives. It's one of the most amazing speeches you'll hear. Or look at Reagan's speech after the Challenger crash. Like, Reagan gave a speech after the Challenger crash that had some of the most beautiful prose I've ever heard in my entire life. And he didn't write it. Like, Peggy Noonan wrote it, but he delivered it. So then Donald Trump comes along. And uh, I had, like... A pessimistic feeling about trump and like i like i got invited to like election parties and i'm like i don't want to go anywhere because i want to be at home near the red wine if this goes sideways mm. and it went sideways fast um mm-hmm. uh, and so i came in the next day and my kids were in tears because i have muslim students who are worried about are they gonna be forced to register mm. i have students whose parents are lgbt who are like concerned that is are their parents marriage is going to be invalidated I have students who are uh, whose parents are undocumented. They're undocumented, and they're like, "Is my family gonna be broken up?" Mm. Uh, I had in my class my students. We actually watched two of the debates, like in the classroom, and kind of talked about them. And so, like, my students heard Trump and Pence both talk about stop and frisk being like a great policy. So my African American male students are like, "Am I gonna stop by the police more often?" Yeah. Uh, I also understand that I teach in a school that is full of low income kids who are predominantly brown, who live in a city in the state of Washington on the west coast so they're not demonstrative or representative of the nation as a whole and in the lead up to the election i tried to prepare them for that but uh my kids are hurting like and there and there's a there's an anxiety about the future there and like i can't look them in the eye and tell them it's going to be okay because i don't know what's gonna be okay like trump could be um gerald ford who's like kind of a bumbling republican who's pro-business and like serves one term or like Trump, like there's a worst case scenario where like Trump is super divisive and like this becomes like a Franco situation in Spain Mm. and like there's blood in the streets and like that sounds hyperbolic but there was a lot of violence after the election and a lot of assaults on people Mm. and like that's something that's kind of hard to process and I I think that's exacerbated by the fact that like because of liberal politics um, the left has disarmed themselves, Mm. right? So like the left has embraced gun control which means that Nobody on the left has has weapons, and like, by wow, this is a crazy conversation we're having right now, right? But like, nobody <laughs> no, on the I left love has it. weapons, I love right? I That's great. Meanwhile, yeah. the right is armed to the teeth and angry, yeah. and so they're armed to the teeth and angry. And like, so, am I saying some right wing mob is going to storm through my neighborhood and like and bust heads? No, but do I feel a little more on edge when I'm in certain places? Yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah. Like, I went to the Apple Cup uh, in November and. I've never seen so much camo on, on like on a campus on a college yeah. campus, and like my students were telling me that the day after the election, the college Republicans at Wazoo built a Trump wall. Huh. Like they built a Trump victory wall on campus out of cardboard and um, and, and out of out of plywood, and like. I don't know, I've never seen an electoral celebration celebrated like this. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm i going a lot, but one anecdote that's in my head that I just, I just can't get over is, is that as part of my teacher of the yeardom, um, we had a gala in D.C. at the Ronald Reagan Federal Building. Beautiful facility, right? A week after the election, that's where that alt-right convention was. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. And so where I sat and listened to the Secretary of Education talk about like ed equity, Neo-Nazis are saying Hail Victory in that same space in Washington, D.C., like, wide in the open. And, like, I took German in seventh grade. Like, I know what Hail Victory means. Like, that's Zeke Heil. And so, like, the idea... And, and, like, nobody seemed upset about it. Like, it was in the Atlantic and all my liberal friends shared it. But we went to war against Nazism. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the... in political science, we talk about the Overton window, which is, like, the realm of the possible. Like, the Overton window has been stretched. And all of a sudden, like, Nazis are sticking their head through the door. And everybody's like, oh, you know, it's going to be fine. Kind of like, makes sense. I,
1: yeah,
2: I, I, I'm not sure it's going to be fine. Yeah. And so, like, w- w- all I can do, essentially, is use my platform to advocate yeah. and then prepare my students for uh, for their future as critical thinkers so they can function in society, like, whatever it is.
1: Right. One, of, one of my favorite ideas that's popped up recently that I saw on Twitter or something like that is... Uh, if the, if the Muslim registration happens that basically just everybody yep. signs up for it yep. and, and I, just I messes with the data, which I'm totally going to do. I'll add, I will show up to register armed. I'm
2: not going to lie. For sure. <laughs> My yeah. wife's like, no, you're not. I'm like, yeah. I'm probably not. But like, it's a good line.
1: So yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. Whew. Man, that's, that's good. It, I, I that's have good.
2: It. I take it deep sometimes, y'all. It's just no, like, no, 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 no. I like no, it. I
1: like it. It's good. You know, we got to yeah, it's good. Um, Let's talk Washington State School funding, yeah, let's break that so for our listeners, uh, they want to be educated, uh, they want to understand um, what are the what are the issues we're facing here in Seattle. Sure. Um, you know that's that's our target demographic of folks who are listening. Um, so how do property evaluations take into account how quality schools get funding or or, or just schools in general get funding? Um. Yeah. Break that down. for And then us. also maybe too, like in
0: the past, for the past ten years or so, education's been underfunded. Yep. Yes. And there's a movement to like what Tyler's talking about yeah. to yep. incorporate all this sure. new funding for.
2: Well, I, for I, I a, think we have to start with the core issue that kids who are in poverty cost more to educate, and they cost more to educate because kids who are in poverty have uh, higher percentage of students who are English language learners, higher percentage of students who are special education and higher percentage of students that have, like, mental health needs. And also, oftentimes, there's, like, there's, there's less predictability in their life, so you need more wraparound services. The issue we have, though, is, is that the funding allocation for schools in Washington state, everybody from this state gets the same amount per student. So, according to the state of Washington, a kid in the nicest neighborhood in Medina costs the same amount to educate as a kid in, like, the worst part of Seattle, the worst part of Tacoma. And so then, that's, like, the basic funding formula. And then what happens is, is that local municipalities with their districts have levies, and these levies are property tax levies that they can use to raise additional money. So Washington's Constitution says that the funding of schools in Washington state is the paramount duty of the state of Washington. Uh, and that's like the funding of basic education. Uh, the state does not give enough money, full stop, to districts to do basic education. So what's happened is, is that local municipalities have taxed themselves via levies to fund their schools. And so what you get is, is that people that have higher property values have the ability to raise more money and they have, and they use that money for better facilities, higher teacher salaries, better, 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 better. Communities that have less money have less capacity to raise that money. And so they're more dependent on the state allocation, which for them is the same as the wealthier districts. So the way this breaks down is, is that teachers in Snohomish County and the east side of King County are the best paid teachers in the state and they've earned every dollar they make. In central Washington, particularly, and, and also places along south Seattle, who like, where aren't Seattle proper, but like Highline and Willow, you have really high-need populations, but they can't pass levies. And one of the reasons why they struggle with levies is, is that the majority of their kids in their schools are brown, and the majority of the parents and homeowners aren't. And that's just a, a really kind of sad reality.
0: So are those... White kids
2: going to private school in those? Well, in, in some cases, yes. But in other cases, like, just the neighborhoods have changed, right? Gotcha. Like, if you drove through Tuckwilla or, like, the area around SeaTac Airport 30 years ago, right? Like, it didn't look like it looks now. There wasn't the high population of East African students. And so what's happened is as those neighborhoods have browned, the white families who are there are older and have fewer kids in school. Gotcha. Right? And so the kids who were in the school are largely renting or living in apartments, and the homeowners aren't voting the tax themselves to educate somebody else's, air quotes, somebody else's kids. Right. Uh, the state of Washington isn't adequately funding schools. And what's happening is, is that the existing inequality that we're seeing in housing right, is actually driving more inequality in education. Mm. And so the state's been sued about this. and It's called the McCleary case. They've lost. And this case has been going for a decade, like you mentioned. Uh, and it's to the point now where the state Supreme Court has found the legislature in contempt. And this is the year where the legislature is supposed to finally fully fund education, which is a very like kind of fuzzy term. We haven't defined what fully funded looks like. Um, But essentially every school district in Washington state should be getting more money. And then if I have a magic wand, our highest need districts would get more, more money because they have more, more need.
0: Is that on the table?
2: It's on the table, yes, but not as strongly as I would like it. But like, also, I don't rule the world, right? Sure. And so, yeah, it's it, it's on the table. Uh, but we're not we're not being as bold as some other places are. So, like, Massachusetts has like the highest performing uh, school system in the country, and they do a thing called equitable funding. So if they if you're a wealthy district, you get less money from the state because you need less money to fund your your schools. And if you're a poor district, you get more money from the state because you need more money to run programs. And there's accountability stuff in there. But I would just say that. Um, The kids who are attending, you know, Newport and Interlake and Bellevue High School, uh, they're easier to teach. It's easier to teach a population who is, again, sheltered, Mm. clothed, and largely homogeneous than is a population that is largely unsheltered, unfed,
1: and diverse. And also has a parent-teacher coalition raising massive amounts of money for it. And
2: so this is the thing that really fascinates me is, so I'm a government teacher and there's a, there's a connection that like I have in my head that I haven't fully fleshed out in writing yet that looks about how PACs and politics are like PTAs. Mm. Like PTAs yeah. are dark money, right? It's Ooh, dark money. and i, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not throwing shade at the PTA. Like I, <laughs> no, no, hear me. Uh. I spoke at the PTA convention. Those parents are doing the absolute best thing for their kids and like God bless them. But like PTA money is dark money that's not even accounted for in the budget. I've heard crazy stories about how much PTA moms spend on the East side. And not East side of Tacoma, by the way. East side of like, like yeah. So I've heard
0: crazy numbers. Going way back, I actually was a student teacher. Mm-hmm. I never got hired, but it was at Bellevue High School. Yeah. And the PTA was, like, throwing money at teachers. It was crazy. And they already had, like, the best of everything in that school.
2: If you have a budget shortfall, uh, PTAs have basically raised money to, like, keep teachers in in positions. If you're in... Eastern Washington, rural Eastern Washington, there's no PTA at all. And there surely is isn't a PTA that's going to raise the money for a teacher's salary. Yeah. Right. And like, these are the equity issues that like, we don't talk about in education, but that really undergird like, the work that we're doing. One thing I'll also add to the conversation is, is uh, class size. Mm. So again, students who are stable and taken care of are easier to teach. You can have 30 or so of them in a classroom. Kids whose lives are in chaos and who have emotional problems and have a lack of predictability per- per- in their life like, having 30 of them is a little more difficult. Uh, there was an initiative in Washington State to reduce class size. The legislature suspended it. But I, I have a problem with this because we talk about class size. Every private school puts on the front page of their brochure their student-teacher ratio. Every university puts faculty-people ratio because, like, those numbers matter. But we don't do that for kids mm. in public schools. Like, if if... Every private school in Washington State has a a teacher-to-student ratio of 18%. That's because they understand that's what people want. Kids deserve that in public schools too, but we're not willing to fund that. But that's a whole different conversation because, like, if we're going to drop class sizes to the levels of private schools, then it throws the budget even more out of whack because you basically need twice as many teachers, right? And we already already have a shortage. But, like, class size reductions at high-poverty schools is a conversation that I think we should be having as well.
0: So this this budget that's um, the governor put forth yesterday. Yeah, and
2: uh, yesterday from my classroom and from my school. Yeah,
0: nice. Okay, so is this something? This isn't going to vote, right? It's only going to vote in the legislature. So
2: the way that it works in the Washington state legislature is is the bu- the governor basically says let's dance and introduces a budget in like January December. Then the Senate releases theirs like in March, and then the House around the same time. That sounds about right to me. Takes me off by a little bit, but basically there's a Senate budget a house budget, and a, go- and a governor's budget. But the governor offers kind of first.
0: And when would it be decided on?
2: So the state legislative session runs either three months or five months. Basically, like, we should be wrapped up around May with a budget. Okay. Um, and the budget that the governor uh, basically asked for yesterday includes a Bino tax increase. It includes the creation of a capital gains tax of 7.2%, I want to say. Yes. Okay. But that capital gains tax only applies to individuals who have $25,000 in capital gains or couples with $50,000 in capital gains. So, like, literally 30,000 people in Washington State pay that capital gains tax. Uh, There's a carbon tax, which impacts industry, and I think that's
1: it. I think so. And
2: so it's one of those things where, like, anytime you come out for a tax, the usual folks are like, whoa, that tax is going to slow down economic growth. But, like, hello, can we talk about the dynamism of the economy in Washington State for a second? Costco, Nordstrom, Starbucks, Boeing, Microsoft, like I, I, I don't buy this slowdown down the economic dynamism. I, I would say to anybody who's uh, trepidatious about the governor's budget, you cannot waste money if we're thinking in the long term about the good of our society. You cannot waste money investing in education infrastructure.
0: Right.
2: Like I, I've traveled to China twice. Uh, the Chinese are outbuilding us, and the Chinese. Are doing everything they can to accelerate the quality of education that their kids get, including fine, including flying like noted American teachers over there to work with their kids. Uh, if Washington state wants to maintain its competitive advantage, then we need to be educating our kids. And right now, uh, Washington schools do fine, but like we could do a lot better. We're not with Massachusetts. We're not. We're not up there, right? right. Um, I think about the, the Boeing company and like what's happened with them. Uh, The Boeing company has basically held Washington state over a barrel several times and threatened to ship jobs to South Carolina.
1: Totally.
2: So they ship machinist jobs to South Carolina because South Carolina machinists can do the work. They can't ship all the engineering jobs because they don't have the engineers we have. But those engineers are gonna reach retirement age. If we're going to replenish that stock of engineers, that's going to need to come through schools, Mm. right? right? Right. And same with computer programmers. Unfortunately, Washington State actually imports more college grads than almost any other state. And one of the reasons why is that, like, college costs and college going in in Washington State, like, isn't at the level that it should be. Mm. Like, we essentially, this sounds dumb, but, like, in some way, Cascadia, like the Washington, Oregon, British Columbia area, is the Scandinavian North America. Like, we could have a Scandinavian style of living, a Scandinavian standard of living, levels of education. That requires taxation, and we choose not to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's really unfortunate because, like, I, I listened to your last episode with Marguerite. We have to invest in infrastructure. Like, the Puget Sound region right now is like a kid who like whose suit has gotten too big, mm-hmm. right? And it's bursting at the seams. Right. When I was a kid, like, getting to Seattle was a half-hour, 45-minute drive. It ain't now, yeah. right? It took me an hour... 30 to get up here and
0: we're very grateful for that uh, yeah my, my pleasure but
2: like <laughs> we need to invest in education we need to invest in infrastructure otherwise like I, i'll put it this way the business sector is going to squeal about short-term costs but those short-term costs and taxes are buying us long-term prosperity
0: mm-hmm.
2: and business if anybody should understand the importance of long-term investment and so if they're going to apply the idea of long-term investment to their own balance books and their own practices, then we should apply it to budgets as well. It's – Republicans – and I'm not crapping on Republicans. Republicans are always like, we should run government like a business. We should. And business is a long-term plan. Right. An investment in education and transportation is a long-term right. plan a for success. Yeah. So
0: practically speaking, yeah. if this budget gets – if James Lee's proposal gets approved yep. – Nate Bowling, high school teacher, how does that look for you? Does the money actually trickle down to your classroom? Like- sure, sure it does. Um, it's going to include class size reductions. Okay. It's
2: going to include uh, elevated teacher salaries at the beginning level. Here's, here's one thing about teaching and money. Uh, nobody, well, not nobody, not many people get out of teaching because of the pay, but a lot of people don't go into it because of pay. And the minimum salary allocation from the state of Washington right now is like $34,000. Okay, let's imagine that you have a degree in mathematics from anywhere. Are you going to teach math for $34,000?
0: Go to Microsoft or Amazon. Fact,
2: right? And so it's going to boost starting teacher salaries. Boosting starting teacher salaries is going to bring more quality and thoughtful and more people into the career field. And that's going to help what's happening in my building. Hmm. Um, Another thing this budget is going to do is provide 10 days of teacher training, like paid days. Teaching is a very isolating thing. Like it's me and the kids in the classroom, right? Right. I don't get to interact with and sit down with other practitioners very often. This budget has 10 paid days would allow me to do that. Mm-hmm. And myself as a master teacher, like I, I've been in the game for 11 years. I have stuff to learn still, and I'm improving every year. Uh, but that also allows me to be a coach and to facilitate and to work with other people. Uh, the third thing the budget has that I really like is mentoring. Uh, I'm assuming that like you haven't learned everything about real estate from like yourselves. There's been some like interaction, some coaching, some mentoring.
0: Absolutely. Right?
2: Uh, every career field has mentoring built into it, except for teaching. Like, mm-hmm. there's no like real intentional structures around mentoring, mm-hmm. and so this budget has that as well. And so, like, that's huge. And the other thing I love about this budget is, is that this budget doesn't cut mental health services. Mm-hmm. At one point, there was a proposal to fund education increases by but cutting to mental, cut health. mental health. Right, yeah. but like, look yeah. at our marginalized poor populations. Right, they need the mental health services.
1: Well, and even we did an episode with Jeff Lilly, CEO of Union Gospel yeah, Mission, yeah, yeah. recently, and. Uh, that was his number one pitch was it's not a homeless issue, it's a mental health issue. Absolutely. um, And that just continues to grow. Well,
2: that's one of the things that, like, Seattle just has to confront. Like, I love going to Sounders games, but every time I go, like, I'm confronted with the fact that I'm standing with, like, in the shadows of a billion dollars worth of stadia surrounded by just abject poverty and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's insane to me that a city with with this much wealth, like, allows Pioneer Square to exist as it is in Squalor.
1: Yeah. Totally. So let's talk practicality, right? So I, I always want to bring this back to our listeners. So what can we do um, as a group of people who care about this issue, who are trying to learn more about it? Sure. Um, and what what can we do to help influence it towards getting past?
2: So it, it sounds weird, but like one of the most important things you can do is just stay informed. And I feel like newspapers are dying. And I really think that like we we would be better off as a society if we were all reading our local paper and being tuned into the issues. Uh, like beyond that, if you belong to a professional organization like the Realtors Association or the Teachers Union or other groups like that, and they have a stance one way or the other on the budget, like pick up the phone and say, "Hey, this is important for the long-term sustainability and future of our region." And like I understand that like our usual dogma is anti-tax, but like we need to do this,
1: mm. right? To, to get this on record, uh, our friend Marguerite wanted me to tell you that there are realtors out there who are uh, in favor of education, yeah, no, and I and, um, I and I
2: and I love Marguerite, and I and I, I know that, but it's 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 bigger than that, right? Like if right. you're a, if you're a builder,
1: right? Well, right, right, the yeah. The
2: master the master builder association is going to come out and say this is a uh, tax and spend budget. Uh, the Washington Business Roundtable is probably going to come out and say. And so, if you work for a corporation or if you're a part of a professional association that normally has an anti-tax stance, then it's time to pick up the phone and say, like, this is different. Like we're talking about a four billion dollar investment in education. This is. An investment in Washington's future. This is an investment in our kids. This is an investment in our families. And uh I feel like we only get one shot at this. Mm. Like I really do. If we What's don't, at
0: stake if it's not approved?
2: Well, what's at stake is is that the legislature will basically declare victory on McCleary without changing anything, and the status quo will remain intact. Mm. And the status quo fuels inequality.
1: Mm. Yeah. So let's let's take it back to Seattle. Yeah. Um because ultimately, this is a podcast about Seattle. For sure. Um, I know that you, you live and you teach in Tacoma, uh, but you, I believe you have the authority to speak on Seattle schools just as sure. uh, the Washington State Teacher of the Year. Uh, so from your perspective, the Seattle school district seems like a huge bureaucratic nightmare. Um, what's your take on Seattle schools? Would you ever want to teach in Seattle? Yeah, what do you think? He's shaking his head. And, uh, yeah, I, I there are some amazing,
2: amazing friends of mine who work and teach in Seattle schools. Uh, I can't mess with Seattle public schools. Like I don't know what's happening. I I open the paper from day to day and I'm like, what in the world? <laughs> um, w- one of the issues they have is is that like they can't keep a superintendent in place, right? And their school board uh, drives the district. So I I guess there's different models. I prefer a model with a strong superintendent in which the school board provides oversight and accountability. Not a model where the school board drives things like it seems in Seattle does. And so when you have elections, directions shift, and then you have a revolving door of superintendents. Um, The equity issues in Seattle are brutal. Like, one of my favorite stats, or I guess least favorite stats is, is like about teacher seniority. And so longevity in the profession doesn't mean that you're better, but like I'm a hell of a lot better teacher in year 11 than I was in year four. Okay. Uh, Rainier Beach High School, which is our highest-need high school in the city, has, I want to say, a seniority of... It's definitely under seven years, and it might be like four years. And then Roosevelt, which is one of the wealthier schools uh, north of UW, has a seniority of like 15 years. And so like those outcomes are crazy to me. Like how how are you going to have a green staff working with your highest need population and constant churn? I, I, I just don't, I don't understand the choices that get made here in Seattle. Right. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like the Bay area is a, is a harbinger of what's to come for our region. And I, I think that it would really do people in Seattle a service and not just education, and housing, public health, to look at San Francisco and look at just the, the mess San Francisco is yeah. and say, is that the path we want to go down? Yeah. Do we want to be a place that has a a kind of Swiss cheese social network, uh, an education system that's pretty darn uneven and in which nobody who is poor or brown can afford to live in the city, basically? In the same way, like Tacoma has some lessons to look at, too. Do we want to be Oakland? And do we want to become the like rapidly... Um, more expensive uh, land of refuge for Seattle people who want to live in affordable housing. And so like, there's, so not only do Seattle schools have things they need to negotiate through, but like the city of Seattle and city governance has things they need to negotiate through and transportation. It's, it's all, we're seeing a, a, a shifting of, I, I talked about kids about like the social contract, right? The social contract are like the basic agreements we have. We're seeing a renegotiation of the social contract that's happening around issues of education Transportation and like a civic obligation. And like Seattle needs to look itself in the eye and think about like what kind of city it wants to be. Like South Lake Union has become like Amazonia. Mm -hmm. And like everywhere that I have memories of going in Seattle nowadays is like condos or a parking lot. And not that like nostalgia is worth a damn, but if this city is going to become just condos and tech bros, then like (laughs) hard pass. I, I used to like, love to come to Seattle for shows and stuff like that. And like, part of it is I'm older now. I'm, like, I don't go to shows at night. But I'm to the point now where like, I come to Seattle for Husky games, uh, Sounders games, and podcast interviews. And like, beyond, that, <laughs> beyond that, you can't get me up here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I wish it wasn't that way.
1: Yeah.
2: I wish it wasn't that way. But it's, it's, it doesn't have to be this way. And like, the, city, the city doesn't have to go down this path right like we we can have the difficult conversations, but it's going to take leadership, and like the civic leadership in Seattle isn't really strong either,
0: right, and so you're talking about political will, is there political will to make those changes on a Seattle school board level? It depends on the um so here's the issue is that so the
2: Seattle school board gets elected in shifts, and different populations show up in presidential years versus off years and midterms, sure so it really depends, and I would say that I, if I walked out of this of this house this far, this fabulous studio <laughs> and walk down the street and said name one Seattle school board member. Nah. Nah. Right? And so the community's not engaged. Yeah. So like you can't have political will in an area where you're not engaged.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So at the end of every podcast, we like to ask our guests what their greatest hope and their greatest concern is for the city of Seattle. Mm-hmm. You have a platform to kind of speak to a broader sense. You can you can take Seattle on if you want or um Washington State. Washington whatever, State, yeah. Puget Sound Um, Tacoma, if you'd like to. But what's your greatest hope for our region? Sure. And then what's your greatest concern?
2: Uh, My greatest hope for the region is is that we realize that the kids who are attending the same school in different places, Rainier Beach is Lincoln High School. Lincoln High School is Foster High School in Tocqueville. Foster High School is Federal Way. My greatest hope is that we realize that like that's where our future lies, and we make the economic, emotional, and civic investment in those kids and communities to do what needs to happen to transform those buildings. Uh, I say again, like kids whose lives are not stable and kids who are in more diverse populations take more money and more effort to teach, and we need to be realistic about that and make that investment. My greatest fear is is that we don't make that investment and that we kind of we 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 kind of head back into our reality TV fueled screen staring lives and not worry about it because like our kids are fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I. I, I tell this story often. Like, I've, I've traveled to many places in the world, and including, like, Mexico City and Bogota, Colombia, and, like, Hong Kong. And I've seen societies that have, like, stratification haves and have-nots. And that's not the kind of place that I want to live in. And, like, I, I, it's a real firm memory for me. Like, the first time I was in Mexico City, we were in DFA, Uh And uh, along these walls, there's this broken glass stuck in cement sticking up. And that broken glass is what the wealthy keep have on their walls, along with their guard dogs and guards to keep the poor out. I don't want to live in a city of walls. I don't want to live in a nation of walls. Uh, but I fear that there's a growing divergence happening and we're not in this together.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, I was pretty melancholic after the election. And I remember uh, back to this book I read called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, basically one of the greatest works of nonfiction I've ever read. Uh, a guy named Christopher Hedges, basically, he's a war correspondent for the New York Times, talked about watching El Salvador and Bosnia devolve into civil war. And the thing is, it's not like one day a mob shows up. It's it's like a just like it's an it's an escalating, slowly growing disregard for each other. And I guess my biggest fear is that like we lose that empathy across class lines and race lines and head that direction. Hmm. Wow, that's gloomy. Can we have one more question? Yeah, 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 yeah One yeah. more?
1: No, this is, this is good. Great. Um, <laughs> you're a wealth of information, and we're incredibly thankful for you to be here. Yeah. You're constantly blogging. You're constantly tweeting. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like in the time frame that I've followed you on Twitter, I've, like, become a better person and a more knowledgeable person. Thank you, man. Um, I've also learned how to argue with people in a really, like, profound and, and witty yet... Uh, humble way. Yeah. Um, we just retweet bowling, and like, throw <laughs> basically, in our basically, basically that's it. It's what he said? Constant retweets. like he's a friend of mine. <laughs> we just podcasted together. Um, where can people follow your work? Sure. Uh, where can they follow you on the socials? Yep. And yeah. Uh, so I I blog about ed issues and
2: also life issues um, at natebowling.com and then I'm on Twitter and Instagram as nate underscore bowling. Uh, and then also, I helped start a group called Teachers United, which is a teacher-led education policy advocacy group who's based out of uh, Tacoma. And we're at TeachersUnitedWA.org. And what we want to do basically is is create a system that's worthy of our students' potential. And we think that teachers are the best people to advocate for policy for our kids.
1: I love it, man. Cool. Thank you, man. Dude, thank you. Seriously. Go Sounders. Go Huskies. Let's go. Go yeah, <laughs> Go Huskies
0: By the time this airs We'll know if the Huskies Are national champs or not But that's they true. got the they got their work Cut out for them I have tickets to the game In Tampa Oh
1: nice Yeah, yeah. so I'm like
2: Beat Bama Beat Bama
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well I'm from Tennessee too So I'm just saying Beat Bama yeah. Anybody who beats Bama I'm okay Honestly, with Honestly
2: beat Bama At everything Yeah that's, exactly That's for off the mic For sure <laughs>
0: It's true <laughs> Thank you for braving the traffic And being with us uh, My pleasure it, it was an honor to
1: chat with you
2: You know maybe If we did this in like In 20 years I might get on some light rail And ride all the way
1: up There it be is Beautiful Yeah it's great it's coming. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody.
0: Rise Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter, at TheRiseSeattle, and use hashtag RiseSeattle to be a part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.